Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Actually, I can't see you, but I know you're out there. Uh, as I say, probably every time we do one of these, I sure do miss you. All of us here on staff miss seeing you. I'm sure you miss seeing each other. Uh, I can't wait until we can gather again here together in First Baptist Church's building in in this sanctuary and worship again. It's going to be a great, great day. But let's not forget, uh, First Baptist Church is still the church. We're still out there with the opportunities to do great things. So have you checked on someone today? Uh, is it someone you haven't checked on recently? Is there someone else you need to check on tomorrow? Contact them, call, text, find out how they're doing. This is a great opportunity for us to start some practices and habits that we wouldn't do uh, under ordinary circumstances. Uh, if you're not involved in, if you don't get our daily prayer email, go on the website, uh, subscribe to First Moments. It's under the Growing tab on our website, and you'll get a, a prayer email from me every day as long as this COVID-19 thing lasts. Uh, we're Along with streaming our worship services, we're still doing the tough questions uh, via a, a, a video. And, and Michael is doing some stuff for students, and Kathy's putting out stuff for her kids. Uh, there are so many resources and ways we're able to stay connected. Meanwhile, we as ministers are calling around to all our members systematically. So if you haven't gotten a call from one of us yet, you will. Uh, we want to know how you're doing. Just keep in touch, and don't forget to give. Uh, don't forget to use our online giving on, on our website or mail in your gift or, or use an automatic draft. Uh, all of those things to say, we're still the church. Uh, we are still able to be the church without gathering on Sundays. Looking forward to the day when we can again. So we're continuing our series, His Story. And we're looking at individual stories in scripture of God bringing peace to chaos and how God takes a situation that's chaotic, that's, that's messed up, and he brings redemption, he brings shalom, and how all of those stories fit together from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. All of it adds up to one big story of God bringing, taking a world that was in chaos and bringing it to ultimate shalom, ultimate peace, ultimate redemption, and how you and I can be a part of that. And that's going to involve our 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 individual relationships and us becoming people who get involved in transforming relationships with others and bring peace to chaos in, in the lives of students and families and homes and communities, one heart, one family at a time. So today we're looking at Acts chapter six. We're going to start there. We're going to go through uh, several passages in Acts, but that's where we'll be. In a little less than a month, the National Football League will hold its annual draft. And that's when NFL teams get together and they select one by one the players, the college football players who will be part of their roster. And so if you're not a football fan, but you live with one, this is that time every year when you say to the person in your house who's a football fan, hey, wait a second, it's been months since football ended. It'll be months before football starts again. Why are we spending three nights this week watching football on TV? And, and if he's a man and you're a woman, he'll probably shoot back with, well, I could ask you, why are we watching Christmas movies on Hallmark in July? And that's how fights get started, right? Well, the reason why he's watching, or she, there are plenty of uh, female football fans watching, uh, watching us right now, why they're watching football in April is because it matters. 
the person you choose, your team chooses in late April in the draft, the, the six or seven people they choose are going to determine how good they're going to be moving forward. We have a lot of experience with this in Houston. I could name some stories. Let me just tell you a couple. Uh, 35 years ago, can't believe it's that long ago, the Houston Rockets were the worst team in basketball. And so they got to choose first and they chose uh, a guy from Nigeria who'd gone to the University of Houston. He's actually a, a former a soccer goalie named Hakeem Olajuwon. And uh, that worked out pretty well for them. Eight years ago, the Houston Astros were the worst team in baseball. And that meant they got to choose first. And they chose a, a, a Puerto Rican shortstop named Carlos Correa. Again, good decision. But these are Houston teams, right? So there have been a lot of picks that weren't so good. I could tell you about five years earlier when the Astros had a a high draft pick and they gave it up for the right to sign an overweight first baseman who shall remain nameless because he's one of my least favorite players ever. And so they got nobody, right? But they got fortunate. See, that same year, they were were putting on an amateur uh, tryout in the country of Venezuela just seeing if there's any baseball talent they could use in Venezuela. And a 16-year-old kid showed up who wanted to try out. The scouts took one look at him and said, there's no way you're 16, kid. You're tiny. Go home. Well, the next day he came back with a birth certificate proving he was 16. So they let him on the field. He was so talented and he was so passionate. They signed him to a contract. And that's how the Astros got a guy named Jose Altuve to play for them. Uh, and, And so we think about that. And by the way, if you're not a sports fan and you've zoned out for the past three minutes as I've been talking, come back because I'm done talking about sports. But we all know the day Jesus made his first draft pick, the day Jesus decided to build his team, starting with one person. And it's found in Matthew 16. This is not the text I'm going to preach on, but it's where Jesus chooses Peter. And he looks at Peter and says, upon this rock, the word rock is the same as the, as the name Peter in Greek. Upon this rock, this Petros, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is saying, this guy, Peter, is my first pick. I'm going to start my church starting with him. I'm building my team around him, the way the, the rockets built around Olajuwon, the way the Astros built around Correa and Altuve. And you and I hear that and we say, yeah, that makes sense. Peter was a courageous, bold, dynamic preacher of the gospel, spoke the truth, uh, preached his first sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. That's a pretty good debut sermon, I'd say. Walked on water, uh, stood up strong for the Lord, was released from prison by an angel, actually actually uh, preached the first uh, gospel message to a room full of Romans in the home of of. Cornelius the centurion. So, so Peter did incredible things. Church tradition says he was martyred for the faith, crucified upside down because he refused to be killed in the same way as his Lord. So we look at him as a hero and we say, okay, so God chooses people like Peter and I'm not one of those people. God wouldn't build anything around me. So there's people like Peter who are up here on this high plane that obviously God chooses. And then there are people like me who just get to be ordinary Christians. But there are two problems with that mindset. Number one, Peter didn't start out courageous. He didn't start out bold. He didn't start out wise. He didn't start out full of passion for the gospel. Remember, he, he walked on water, yeah, but he took two steps and dropped like a rock. You read the gospels and you see how many times Peter got it wrong. How many times Peter embarrassed Jesus. 
and embarrassed himself, not the least of which was the night before the crucifixion when he denied Jesus three times. So the person you are now is not the person you will be when Jesus is through with you. If you give yourself fully to the Lord, the person you are now is a faint echo or a mere shadow of the person you will become under the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's a second problem with this idea that God would never build something around you and me, and that is because God chose all kinds of people. You read it in the scriptures, and there's, we just have a, a small portion of the stories, but there are all kinds of people God chooses in the scriptures that we don't know as well as we know Peter. And one of those is who we're going to look at today, a man named Philip, a relative nobody compared to Peter. There are only three chapters of the Bible where his name even is mentioned, and we're going to look at all three today. And the first one is Acts chapter 6. So let me give you some context of Acts chapter 6. This story is about the first big fight in the original church. And it was a fight that was based on culture, cultural differences. Anytime there are cultural differences in any group, any business, any neighborhood, any organization, there's going to be some conflict. And here's how it shook out. See, the, the Jewish world of the first century was very diverse, Jews for hundreds of years had been living all over the Mediterranean world in portions of Greece and Turkey and Rome. And then there were those Jews who lived in Israel. And Jews who lived in Israel tended to be Hebrew by culture. And what I mean by that is they spoke Hebrew as their first language. They ate Jewish food. They dressed like Jews. They avoided things that seemed too Greek. Like they didn't go to the theater. They didn't go to the gladiatorial games. They didn't go to the Olympics. They avoided things that were Greek because those things were considered pagan. On the other hand, Jews who had grown up and spent most of their lives in foreign countries, for the most part, they were Greek in culture. Although they were just as Jewish as the Hebrew Jews, they spoke Greek as their original language. They ate Greek food. They wore Greek clothing. They went to the plays. They went to the games. They read Greek literature. They were Greek by culture. And so there was diversity in the early church. Because remember, the day the church was born was the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel when thousands of people were in Jerusalem from all over the world. And many of those people were Greek by culture. So let me say it again. The early church, thousands of people, some of them were Hebrew culturally and some of them were Greek culturally. And it wasn't a problem until this one incident in Acts chapter 6. And here's what happened. See, the early church, one of the things that set them apart from other people groups was they took care of the poor. They were very intentional about taking care of those who couldn't take care of themselves. And one group that couldn't take care of itself was widows. In the ancient world, if you were a woman, it was hard for you to earn a living for yourself. So you, were, you would hope you married well. And if you were widowed and you didn't have adult sons who were able to provide for you, you were in trouble. You had to beg. And so the early church said, one of the ways we're going to set ourselves apart and serve the Lord is by loving widows. We're going to bring food to widows and make sure they are well taken care of, which is a great idea, which helped the early church set itself apart, which helped the early church spread. But eventually the Greek culture, the culturally Greek Jews in the early church started to say, wait a second, we see the the disciples and they're taking food to all the widows but they're giving better food to the Jewish ones, to the Hebrew-speaking widows, than to the ones who are like us. We feel like our Greek widows are getting the shaft, and that's not fair. And this could have split the early church. You know how much uh, joy Satan would have gotten to see that early church of thousands just 
divide and suddenly be two churches instead of one. And so the disciples came up with a great plan, extremely wise. They said, listen, our calling and our gifting from God is to preach the gospel and to pray and to lead spiritually. We've been trying to do that, plus serve widows food and do all this logistical work. And frankly, we're not good at it. That's not what we're called to do. And that's why things are bad, because we're trying to do something that's, that we're not called to do. So let's find seven men who can handle that task so we can get back to doing what we're called to do. And they made another wise move. They said, we're not going to choose those seven men. We want the church itself to choose it. We want the church itself to say, here are the seven who are going to take on this duty. Now, historically, a lot of Bible scholars have pointed to this and said, this is how the idea of deacons first started. People who will come alongside and do ministry that the pastoral staff, let's say, can't do for themselves because they just don't have the bandwidth or the gifting. But the word deacon doesn't appear in Acts chapter 6. Let me just read to you what happens in Acts 6, verses 5 through 7. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Remember that name. And Philip, that's our boy. That's who we're going to talk about. And Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The interesting thing about this is the seven men that were chosen to do this duty of taking food to widows, they're all Greeks. The names that are mentioned, Stephen and Philip and so forth, those are all Greek names, not Hebrew names. So the, so the Hebrew or the, the Greek-speaking Christians in the congregation put forward seven of their own men to do this responsibility because they said, we've already got 12 Hebrew disciples. Let's put some Greeks on the leadership team so that everybody feels like they're being treated equitably. And Philip was one of those men. So this is our first introduction to Philip. Note, his first responsibility, his first job for God is not to be a preacher, not to be what we would call a spiritual leader, but basically an administrator. He's in charge of logistics. He's in charge of making sure there's enough food, enough of the right kind of food for every single widow, and the delivery system is efficient and effective, and everybody's getting taken care of in a way that shows that everybody matters. But I want you to see again, verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the gospel took a big quantum leap forward because of this. Note, not because the apostles started preaching better sermons, not because all of a sudden they were able to do more incredible miracles, simply because seven men came forward and started doing logistical work work that we would consider unspiritual, delivering food. That caused the gospel to spread, and not just the gospel to spread, but some of the Jewish priests, many of the Jewish priests, becoming believers in Jesus. In other words, men from the tribe of Levi, sons of Aaron, who had been spiritual leaders in Judaism, suddenly realized Jesus is our Messiah too. Jesus is our Savior Now, how did this happen? Luke does not spell it out, but I've got a guess, and it's purely my guess. I think those priests said to themselves, listen, I've been in the religion business my whole life. 
And I've seen religion cause all kinds of division and all kinds of hurt feelings. I have never seen anything like this where people just motivated by the Spirit of God stepped forward and said, I will do the work. I will do what it takes to keep our church bound together. I will do what it takes to make sure that the the marginalized are taken care of so that the congregation of God will stay together and God will get the glory. And I think that's what drove those priests away from thinking, I've still got to wait for my Messiah to saying, no, 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 my Messiah has already come and his name was Jesus and I'm going to follow him from this day forward. So the second story that we read about Philip, we jump to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now let me stop there and just say, what does it mean, those who were scattered? You may be familiar with the name of a guy named, uh, with a guy named Saul of Tarsus. So Acts chapter 7 is the story of the first Christian martyr, and that was Stephen, one of the seven. I told you to remember his name earlier. Stephen had, uh, had started proclaiming the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, and a group of opponents of Jesus came and rounded him up and stoned him to death. Saul was a young man at that time. He was there at that martyrdom, at that stoning, and it lit a fire inside of him. It lit a, a, a fire of unholy passion where he just felt like this zeal came upon him. And he felt like, if I'm going to serve God, I'm going to do it by killing as many infidels as possible. Today, we would call Saul a terrorist. He was religiously motivated to kill anyone who didn't believe in, in the things he believed in. So he was rounding up Christians and, and putting them in jail so they could be stoned to death just like Stephen had been. And that's why it says those who were scattered. Because at that point, the church, which had been s- centered in Jerusalem, meeting in the temple courts, uh, getting together for dinner and, and worship from house to house, now they were scattered. Now they went all over the region of Judea, all over modern-day Israel and beyond, even down to Antioch. It says, let me get back to chapter 8. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So several things happen in those four verses that I want to point out to you. First of all, it says those who were scattered went preaching the word. I think this is significant because up till now, all the preaching has been done by the apostles. And Stephen was sort of the outlier. But the apostles were the ones who proclaimed and everyone listened to them. But now that the church has been scattered, they don't have the apostles anymore. The apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem. The church scattered And so you've got individual Christians and families and little pockets of believers who go around and say, well, we don't have apostles to preach to us anymore. And so people like Philip are saying, well, the same Holy Spirit is in me as as is in Simon Peter. The same Holy Spirit is in me as is in Andrew and John and James. So why can't I proclaim the word too? And so they go wherever they go, they start telling people about Jesus. This is one of those great examples of what the devil meant for evil, God turned into good. So Satan unleashes this incredible persecution on the church in Jerusalem, probably thinking, I'm going to stop this Jesus movement right now. But instead, what he does is just spread, just spread the gospel in ways that must have horrified him when it happened. Note also, Philip starts preaching. And as far as we know, this is the first time Philip has ever preached. 
Philip finds out, hey, I'm going to try something new. And he finds out I'm actually good at this. Not only am I good at proclaiming the word, God is giving me, me the ability to work miracles just like the apostles did. And so the lesson for us is keep on trying new things for God. You'll find some things as you just volunteer for ministry, as you serve wherever you see opportunity, you'll find some things that you're no good at at all and you'll stop doing them. But you'll also find things that you're really good at. But you've got to try them before you know. Notice where he preaches. He preaches in Samaria. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, or you've been to church or Sunday school, you've heard about Samaritans before, most famously the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've probably got this vague idea that Jews and Samaritans get along, but most Christians don't know uh, a whole lot about the Samaritan people. So let me just give you a quick, very quick tutorial. So Samaria was not a different country. Samaria was a region within Israel. The Samaritan people have a, kind of an interesting origin story. See, back 700 years before this, the nation of Israel was split in two. There was the northern kingdom, which was composed of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was the southern kingdom called Judah. And 700 years before this, the empire of Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes, and just destroyed the land and carried away as many of those people as possible and brought them back to Assyria, where they've basically vanished into history. They, they, re, they either died or they intermarried with non-Jewish people, and we've lost those 10 tribes. There were some people left behind, people who didn't get arrested and carried off in the, in the captivity. They stayed behind in the land. And then when pagan people moved in, Assyrians and, and other peoples moved in to occupy the land, they intermarried with these Jews who'd been left behind. And those Jews started to tell those new people about Yahweh, and they formed their own basic their own form of Judaism. They didn't go down to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. They built their own temple. And so this is where the Samaritans came from. They were a, a partially Jewish ethnic people who were religiously worshiping Yahweh, just not according to the standards of Judaism. And, and the, the conflict between Jews and Samaritans goes back a long, long way. It goes back uh, even to the time of Nehemiah. If you, when you read the book of Nehemiah and it talks about Nehemiah coming from Babylon as a Jewish man to rebuild Jerusalem, the people who opposed him, who threatened him with violence, who tried to convince him not to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem were Samaritans saying, we're going to kill you if you rebuild the city. And so there's this deep, deep hatred between those two people groups who live in the same country. And so, so for Philip to say, I'm going to go, now that I can't live in Jerusalem anymore, I'm going to go and share the gospel in Samaria is like going back 50, 60, 100 years in the South to a segregated town and seeing a man say, I'm going to leave my white church and I'm going to cross the tracks and start preaching the gospel uh, on the black side of town. Or a black Christian will leave his black church and go across the tracks into the white side of town and take the real gospel to people who hate him. Uh, that's what Philip is doing here. And we see the gospel just explode. Against all the odds, the gospel explodes in Samaria. Now, our next story, our third story is found later in that same chapter. God does something that just doesn't make any sense from a strategic standpoint. He says to Philip, I want you to leave. I know the gospel's blowing up in Samaria and people are getting saved left and right. I want you to leave, though. I want you to go to Gaza. By the way, Gaza is nowhere near Samaria. I want you to stand on the road in the desert and wait. Now, today, we all know if we watch the news, Gaza is a very violent place. It's a place you don't want to be. Back then, it didn't have that 
sort of reputation, but it was known as a place with very few people. Philip is, is leaving a place where the gospel is exploding. He's going to a place where hardly anybody lives, and he's just supposed to stand by a desert road. And, and what happens next is amazing. So here's our third story about Philip, Acts chapter 8, verse 27. This is our longest story, so stick with me. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and, he, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I find it noteworthy that God has to tell Philip to go stand by the chariot. Because here's Philip, he's standing on a desert road waiting for someone to come along. And eventually this guy comes along in this chariot, driven by someone else. He's obviously an important man because I'm sure he was followed by this big retinue of officials. Lots of camels, lots of horses, maybe other chariots. And so Philip probably looked at that and said, okay, here's someone important, but God has to prompt him to go up to the chariot. And I don't know why, I know I'm, I'm projecting motives onto Philip that may not have been there, but it seems to me that Philip probably looked at the Ethiopian and said, well, he's not a Jew. I mean, at least the Samaritans were half Jewish. This guy, I can take one look at him and tell you there's not an ounce of Jewish blood in him. So I'm just going to let him pass and wait for the next Jew I see. But God says, no, go alongside that chariot. And Philip goes, runs up next to the chariot, hears him reading of all things, the scroll of Isaiah. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that this man had been to Israel, had been to Jerusalem, to the temple. He had purchased a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. That indicates that this man, an important man in a great, great kingdom, Ethiopia was a significant empire in the ancient world. This man was now a seeker of Yahweh. The Ethiopians had their own gods, just like all, all other people groups around there had their own gods, but this man somehow, some way had said, I believe the God of Israel is the one true God and I want to know more about him. And of all the scrolls, he purchases Isaiah. And let me tell you why that's significant from the standpoint of a man like, like him who is a eunuch. By the way, if you don't know what a eunuch is, look it up. I'm not going to explain it here. I will say that it was very, very common in the ancient world for kings when they chose and recruited men to be high officials in their kingdom to make them eunuchs uh, because they felt like it, it kept them from becoming ambitious. It kept them from uh, becoming a problem. Uh, so, you know, very brutal world we lived in back then. 
But most countries in the world back then, most people groups saw eunuchs as being spiritually inferior, including Israel. In Israel, uh, a eunuch was not allowed to go into the inner parts of the temple, into the parts of the temple where, uh, I guess you would say, normal Jewish people could. So as a eunuch, he was seen in his homeland and in Israel as being someone who could only get so close to God, but no closer. And here's why it's significant that he picked Isaiah. Isaiah 56, three through five says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, I can't have children, so what can I do? For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. You may not be able to have children if you're a eunuch, but you will have something better than that if you serve me. And listen to what he says. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And yes, it says that in the Bible. And yes, it means what you think it means. It means the world can take anything else away from you, but it can't take this away from you once it's yours. Now, the eunuch hasn't gotten to that passage yet. I'm sure later on when he got to that passage in Isaiah, he rejoiced. But for now, he's reading Isaiah 53, not 56. And that gives Philip the perfect opportunity to say, that's a passage about the cross. That's the passage about how God himself came in the form of a man and died for our sins so that we could be redeemed, which is, had to just blow the mind of the eunuch. That's not something that's similar to anything in any religion that's ever been invented. Now, here's the thing about this eunuch. He gets saved. He gets baptized by the side of the road. But as far as I know, he's the first person to come to know Jesus and never join the original church. The first person in history who comes to know Christ and doesn't join the church in Jerusalem. Instead, he goes back to Ethiopia. And to this day, there is an Ethiopian Orthodox church that counts this man as their founder. So who knows how many millions of people came to know Jesus just because Philip took the time to cross racial boundaries to share the gospel with this one man. Now notice the way the story ends in verse 40 is Philip ends up in the town of Caesarea. Caesarea is a city on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. That's where he built his home or bought his home. We don't hear from Philip again until Acts 21, and this is our last story. It's a very, very short one. This one involves Paul. Remember, it's all gone full circle. Remember, it was, it, was, it was Paul, when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus, who caused Philip to leave Jerusalem in the first place. And now all these decades later, Paul, the apostle, is on one of his missionary journeys. He decides, he's in Caesarea. He says, hey, isn't this where Philip lives? Let's go check in with him. And that's where we pick up the story. Acts 21, 8 through 9. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now let me just say for a moment, wouldn't you love to be there? 
Wouldn't you love to have seen and heard the conversation between Paul and Philip, the great apostle and the great evangelist, these men who had known each other for years? Don't you know they had a lot of stories to tell? They hadn't seen each other in a long time. I imagine Philip gave Paul a hard time and said, hey, man, you almost got me when I was living in Jerusalem. Who knows what would have happened to me? But, but you know, God didn't let you. Wouldn't you love to hear the stories they shared? Notice also that the, the pronoun we is used. Why, why does it say we departed and we entered the home of Philip, the evangelist? Because Luke is writing the book of Acts and he is including himself in the story. He's saying, I was there. I was there for this. So there are people who believe, and I'm one of them, that this is one of the reasons why Luke was able to write the book of Acts. Because after all, Luke shows up halfway through the story. How would he know all the stories that we find in Acts chapters 1 through 12? I believe part of it was the conversation that happened that night. And Philip sat down with, with Luke and said, here's what happened. And here's what happened to Peter. And here's what happened to James. And, and told him all those stories because he was there from the beginning. But what I want you to focus on is verse 9. Verse 9 says that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, why does it specify that they were unmarried? Not everybody agrees with me on this, but I think what he's saying is they were young. Most Jewish women got married in their early teens. So we're talking about girls who were 12, who were 10, who were 8, 6. They were very, very young, and yet these four young girls already had a gifting and a calling to speak the word of God, to tell others about Jesus, to speak truth to those who will hear it. Because what is a prophet? We hear the word prophecy and we think of foretelling the future, but that's not what prophets did. Occasionally they did, but for the most part, if you read the prophetic books of the Bible, it's not about telling the future. It's about telling the truth. It's about speaking to people who don't want to hear what God has to say and saying, here's what God is saying. There are several examples of female prophets in scripture. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was a prophet. Huldah, Anna, uh, Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel, prophesied. Mary, the mother of Jesus, we know prophesied at least once. We have it in the Magnificat. The most famous female prophet in Israel was Deborah. Deborah, the spiritual leader of Israel during the time of the judges in Judges 4 through 5. And she and her general Barak won this incredible battle, this great victory over the Canaanites with their iron chariots. And so this is not unheard of for there to be female prophets, but it, wasn't, it also wasn't exceptionally common. So here's Philip's daughters. We don't know anything about Philip's wife. We can assume she was a, a godly woman too, but she's not mentioned. What we know is that Philip has multiplied himself. Philip by this time is probably an older man, but now he's got these four daughters who are called and equipped to speak the gospel of Jesus in a powerful way anointed way. Philip has just quadrupled his own ministry. Think about that. Think about that. Philip starts off as a nobody. He has some administrative skills, some logistical skills, and those are used by God to to spark a, a revolution, an awakening in Jerusalem that wins priests to salvation. Philip then begins preaching because he can't rely on the apostles to do it anymore. Finds out he's good at that. Wins people from Samaria to salvation. Then he ends up winning an Ethiopian man to Christ who who goes back home and and establishes a a brand new sector of the church. And And now he has passed the baton to four other people because he invested in his family, because he was a true Christian dad. And he, he, he passed along his faith to these four girls who were going to multiply his ministry times four. And who knows how many millions of people. 
are in heaven today because of the chain that began with those four girls. So I started today by talking about the draft, the NFL draft, that is. And I have a confession to make, a little bit of embarrassing confession. When I was a little boy, up until I was a teenager, my dream was to play football in the NFL. I'm glad you're not here because I can't hear you laughing. But, but really, when I was little and I would sit there daydreaming instead of doing my homework, what I was usually daydreaming about was playing quarterback for the Houston Oilers and leading them to a Super Bowl. And would you believe when I graduated college in 1992, not a single NFL team called me? Not a one. Nobody called and said, we want you to be our quarterback. Now, it could have had to do with the fact that I was about five foot eight and 170 pounds, and, and that's, that's way smaller than most people who play in the NFL. There are a few who are that small who play football professionally, but they're also very, very fast, which I wasn't. Um, and it might also have to do with the fact that I didn't actually play college football, or it might have to do with the fact that when I did play football back in high school, I wasn't considered good enough to be quarterback. There are all kinds of reasons, but what it all boils down to is The kingdom of God is different than the world. See, pro sports is a meritocracy. The best get chosen. The biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the most talented, they get chosen. And we think that everything is like that because so many things are like that in our world. But the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God is not a meritocracy. It's a graceocracy. And yes, I just made up that word. Everyone, listen to me, everyone who has a desire to serve the Lord can do great things. All, it requ- all God requires is willingness to serve. All God requires is personal surrender. Anybody who says to God, I will go where you tell me to go. I will do what you want me to do. Just make sure that my life is useful to you. If you follow the Holy Spirit and you have that mindset, you are going to do eternally significant things. That is guaranteed because God cannot fail. There are no bench warmers in the church. There is no such thing as an ordinary average Christian. Every single one of us has a role to play in his plan to bring peace to chaos, shalom to the mess of this world, redemption in the midst of destruction. That's our destiny. That's why we're here. Jesus came into this world not just to rescue us from sin and death, although he does. He came into this world to rescue us from mediocre, meaningless lives. See, we're saved to grow into the kinds of people who change the world forever. So let me ask you, have you offered him yourself? Have you said more than anything else, More than I want career success, more than I want to live in a big house, more than I want to marry Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Here's what I want, Lord. I want my life to matter for you. And so I offer you my talents, my gifts, my resources, my dreams and goals and hopes and aspirations. I offer you my everything. Lord, just don't let me miss whatever your purpose is for my life. If you haven't made that decision, and that's something you do on an ongoing basis, if you haven't made that decision or renewed that decision, do that today and just see what God does in and through you. I would love to see what it looks like to be part of a church where everyone is is sold out for accomplishing God's purpose in their lives. And I believe that's going to happen. And I can't wait to be a part of it.